Amen. Well, I uh, I miss Frank, and I'm uh, no no uh, um, disparagement to him, but I have to say I don't know where Jonathan is. I love hearing that violin in worship. Uh, I miss that. Jonathan used to be our music director before Frank, so we had son and then father, and now we have son filling in for father. So, uh, but uh, no, it was wonderful to hear that wonderful violin this morning as our hearts were lifted. In worship. Well, if you turn in your Bible, Bibles, to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25 will be our text. We're only really going to focus on 24 and 25 since we've looked at the other verses. Last time we looked at the creation of woman. And I called your attention to the fact that woman was the final creative act undertaken by our God before he rested on the seventh day. She's the last new thing that he makes. And so God worked and God still works providentially in the fact that he governs and he cares for his creatures. We know that God didn't rest in the sense that we do, but he ceased creating new things. And that is still true to this day. Eve, the woman, remains the final work of the creation of our God. And it was in her creation... That God could see that all that he had made was very good and perfect. And he could say, it's perfect now. I have made the final piece of creation that I have willed and desired. And so that, in fact, was the case. And so we saw that while woman was equal to man, she was different to man from man. And she was a helper to man, not merely for procreation, not merely in domestic duties, But she was, to use Calvin's phrase, to be an associate and to be a companion in all of his life. In all of his life. And in fact, we saw that that comparable, that suitable to him, only a woman can be that for a man. Only a woman can supply what a man needs in order for the human race to fully glorify God and to enjoy him as his image bearers. A world of men could not do that, just as a world of women could not do that. Only men and women living together complete the human race, are in submission to God uh, according to his word, and that is what pleases God. And so we saw that the woman was made to rectify, again, the not good situation of the man being alone, and it was only after her creation that God said, it's very good now. It's very good. It's complete. It's perfect. The final creature of the human being, the other sex Female has now been made, and now the human race is able to perfectly carry out God's will for this world. And that's where we're at right now in the garden. I almost want to stop there for a while. There's no sin. Everything's good. Everything's perfect. And we're going to spend uh, at least one more sermon there. But today we're going to move beyond. For the first time, we're going to go beyond the doctrine of creation. One of the elements of the doctrine of creation, because God's done. He's made Eve. He's not going to make anything new. And today we're going to consider the first human institution in the history of mankind, the most fundamental, the most primary relationship that God gives to man, the institution, the ordinance of marriage. What is marriage? And why is it important for us to know and to keep what God has given? Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you. For the creation of man and woman, the human race, and we thank you for the institution of marriage. Help us to understand it. 
to submit to it, to rejoice in it, and to give you all the glory for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. This is God's holy and perfect word. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air. And he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. May the Lord establish this word in our hearts this morning, I pray. I want you to notice, first of all, the precept of marriage. I want you to notice the precept of marriage. The word precept means law. And we speak of laws or ordinances. Typically we talk about the ordinance of marriage because marriage is a law. Marriage is a law of God. Notice verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall, it should be, and shall cleave. I don't know why the New King James puts it in the passive. Be joined. It's the same exact form of the verb. That the leave is. It's the cal. It's the, there's all these different stems in Hebrew. The cal stem is the simple active stem. It's the simple cal. He shall leave and he shall cleave. Not, not passive. He shall be. Something shall happen to him. No, he shall do it. The old King James says it. He shall leave and he shall cleave. It's a command of God. It's an ordinance. It's not a suggestion. And so Adam and Eve knew that this ordinance was for humankind. It wasn't just, oh, God gave them this just for them. They knew it was for all mankind. That's the whole point of verse 24. Therefore, a man shall, any man shall, leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. This is what mankind will do from now on. The scripture is saying, and whether or not Adam said that verse, because there's no punctuation in the Hebrew, I know your quotation marks stop at the end of verse 23, and it's debated whether or not Adam said verse 24. About half the scholars say he did, about half say he didn't. I'm inclined to say that he did, but whether he did or didn't, I guarantee you this, he knew and Eve knew that this was a divine ordinance for humankind. They both knew verse 24, whether Adam said it or not, which makes marriage the most fundamental, the most ancient, the most sacred God-given institution to the human race. The husband 
wife relationship that we call marriage. There is nothing more fundamental, more primary than this relationship. And in fact, you see that it's the relationship that in Scripture is the only relationship by which the parent-child relationship is to be broken. A man shall leave. He shall leave his parents. He shall break. Now, there's still his parents. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the priority now isn't the parents anymore. It's the wife. And that's true for the wife as well, as we'll see. She is to leave, and she is to make her husband her priority. When Robin and I were first at our first um, PCA church in the early 90s and mid-90s, I guess, in um, New Life in Harrison City, I remember, you remember Pastor Johnson saying that to us, that, you know, your children, as important as they are, they come and they will go. But the two of you, it's forever. Till death do you part. So I would always say to Robin, you know, it's me and you forever, babe. (laughs) And then she would try to run. And I would catch her because I'm faster than she is. That male-female thing, we're typically fast. But, uh, but it, we're sort of, we're feeling it now, aren't we? The kids are all gone. Everybody's calling us empty nesters. Sarah, our, our youngest, our, she's a freshman in college. Most of the time, she's gone. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way God designed it. He loans us these children. They're ours, but they're his. They're going to move on after 18 or 20 years, you hope. And then it's just the two of you. That's what God designed. It's his idea. It's, it's his ordinance. And it's for our good. God gave this institution for the good of mankind. He knows how he made us. And so he commands us to do what's good for us. What's best for us. What we most need to glorify him. And to enjoy him forever. That's what marriage is. When it's done this way. I know the... The Roman church calls marriage a sacrament. We don't believe it's a sacrament. We believe it's a covenant. I'll show you that in a minute. But let me just tell tell you why we don't believe it's a sacrament. We don't believe it's any less holy or any less from God. But sacraments, as we understand them, are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Which means they're signs and seals of salvation by Christ. The covenant of grace is God's promise to save us through Christ. By grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, etc. There's no salvation here. Adam hasn't sinned. Eve hasn't sinned. Marriage can't be a sign and seal of a covenant of grace that doesn't exist yet. At least not to Adam and Eve. They are righteous. Marriage is given to them before sin. Before there's a Christ to hope in. They're perfect and righteous. So so marriage isn't a sacrament of a salvation that Adam and Eve don't need. Marriage is a covenant. The Bible calls marriage a covenant. Covenant is a contract where there are two or more parties in which they agree to certain things. And there are certain rights and responsibilities. There are certain stipulations and duties. There are certain privileges and rewards, punishments and sanctions. Often there are signs and seals of a covenant. In marriage, we do that, right? We give this sign, this ring we put on, part of our promise. It's a covenant. We're entering into a contract that is already defined. We can't just make it up as we go. And that's what marriage is. It's a, it's a covenant. And it's a covenant that's not merely, as I said before, for conjugal duties, for domestic duties, for 
family duties. It's a covenant for all of life. It's a covenant of companionship. I do a lot of premarital counseling. And the first thing we do in premarital counseling is we define marriage according to Scripture. And I show them from Scripture that marriage is a covenant of companionship. That you promise each other that you will be one another's closest and dearest companion for the rest of your lives. Till death do you part. And nothing will come between that. Not parents, not children. Till death do you part. A covenant of companionship. This is what it was designed to be. We're speaking of what marriage is supposed to be. Not what it oftentimes is. Let me make that distinction. This is the way God designed it. The way God intended it. And that it was good this way. It's not good for man to be alone in all of life. Therefore, he needs a companion in all of life. Even if God wouldn't have said it, we should be able to infer it from creation itself. That this is a covenant of companionship for life. There are two different scriptures that actually explicitly call marriage a covenant of companionship. And that's in Malachi chapter 2 verse 14 and Proverbs chapter 2 verse 16. Let me read those verses to you. In Malachi chapter 2 verse 14, scripture says, Yet you say, God is speaking to a disobedient man, Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord God has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, now listen, with whom you have dealt treacherously. So this is given in the context of rebuke. Um, The Jewish uh, um, masculine population have been unfaithful to their wives. God's rebuking them. And then he says this, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. See it? Right there it is. The woman is the man's companion and his wife by covenant. And Malachi goes on, and did he not make them one? And that's why these men were being faithless in mistreating their wives who were their companions by way of covenant. And also in Proverbs chapter 2 verse 16, and even as Malachi was in the context of rebuking unfaithful men... Proverbs is in the context of rebuking unfaithful women. But it also here says that marriage is a covenant of companionship. And so Proverbs chapter 2 verse 16. To deliver you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, verse 17, who leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. So the same thing. This unfaithful woman was doing what? She was practicing adultery. She was leaving her companion. Her companion by way of covenant with God. Marriage is a covenant with God. We can't make it up as we go. We can't change it. We can't make it our marriage. God has defined marriage. And so it's a covenant that God has given to man for man's good. And for God's glory. And so to change it, to alter it, to forbid it where God has permitted it. To permit it where God has forbidden it is to directly rebel against God and to act against the most fundamental institution that God has given us for our good. We might as well try to destroy ourselves literally because by attacking marriage, that is what we are doing. Western society cannot survive the corruption of marriage that we've seen in the last 40 or 50 years. This is the precept 
of marriage. Secondly, I want you to notice the principle of marriage. I want you to notice the principle of marriage. Now we know from chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, that when God made man in his image, he made them male and female, fully equal, fully image bearers of God. We've already looked at that. They have different roles in the relationship of marriage. We're not going to talk about roles in this sermon. I'm going to try to save that for next week because this is more important. This is the foundation. What is marriage? What the roles are comes secondary, comes after that. It's important, but it is not the most important thing, which is what is marriage. And marriage is this precept from God, but there is a principle that is involved. And it has to do with being the image of God. Now, Adam and Eve were both made in the image of God. They're both image bearers. Adam's no more than Eve. Eve is no less than Adam. Fully image bearers in their singleness, right? When Eve hasn't been brought to Adam yet, when God has just made her and he's walking her to him, she is fully in the image of God. When Adam was made and he hasn't seen that he needs one, he's just started naming the animals, he's fully in the image of God. So in singleness, we are fully in the image of God. I don't want to deny that, all right? But also... We show forth God's image in things that we do, right? When man works six days and rests one, he shows himself to be like God. He's imitating God. This is what God did. This is why God revealed the Sabbath to us, so that we could be like him, to work and to rest. We see this in other uh, functions that God has given to mankind. When we live in societies, God created man to be a social creature. When we live by laws... As God has ordained certain things and decreed certain things. Again, we show ourselves to be these rational beings who want to do things orderly. That shows forth God in all of these things. When we exercise dominion over creation, right? And, and mankind does. Right? We're not out in the countryside digging holes in the ground. We, we have dominion. We make roads. We make buildings. We cause the... the Fruits that, you, that grow out in the wild to grow so much better, right? Did you ever, we used to, when I was a kid in Salzburg, we used to know where all the grapevines were that like kind of grew wild. And we would like, you know, sneak into the yards and take some grapes here and there and just eat them. And, and uh, we probably shouldn't have done that. But, um, but if you would compare that to the grapes that like you buy at the store, right? You know, the grapes that you pick and some of them just grew in the woods. And I knew where some of those were too. And the skins would always be really thick and the insides would be small and they'd always be kind of sour. But we ate them anyway. You know, you had to be careful. If you ate too many, you'd get sick. But mankind, by his ingenuity, when you go to the store, right, you buy these big giant grapes, some of them. You know, these, then you get the black grapes and the red grapes and the green. And we know how, with all of our exercising our dominion to take that natural and to make it fuller. And that's what man does. When man does things like that, he's showing forth the image of God. Well, one more thing by which man shows forth the image of God, this is what I'm getting to in the principle of marriage, is that marriage itself shows forth the image of God. That it's a relationship given by God that man would, in his walking in that relationship, show that he is made in the image of God. And I think in particular you see it this way. Even as the Father has eternally begotten the Son. And from the Father and the Son eternally and equally proceed the Spirit. Three persons in one God. So also in marriage you have Eve begotten of Adam. Right? Taken out of him, literally. And from Adam and Eve when they become one flesh... 
you have equally, and we, can, we know this scientifically, right? Equally proceeds children. One child, according to their nature. The child we know is exactly 50% his DNA, 50% her DNA. We know that. He proceeds, every child proceeds equally from the two. So that you have the one flesh, the two becoming one, and from that the three. And you have this completion, as it were, of the family. Where there is the two who become one, and in their oneness proceed equally this, the child, which is the third. And you see this image of the Trinity. And this is the principle of marriage. That's why it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know, it's not said that about any other creature. This isn't just in intercourse, right? Animals have intercourse. They don't become one flesh. Human beings alone become one flesh. It's more than that. It's unity in, yes, body, but in commitment, in mind, in purpose, in love. And, of course, as I said, in offspring. We become, and the child is literally, the oneness of the mother and the father. And there's another connotation here, that the two become one. We get this in the statement of Christ. It's not said here explicitly in Genesis, but Jesus, in referring to these verses in Matthew chapter 19, says this. Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? By the way, Jesus believed that this literally was true, obviously. He doesn't believe that it's a myth. He who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And here it is. And Jesus says, And the two, the two shall become one flesh. There are two in marriage. There are two according to God's design for marriage. Two. We know that physically. Physically, only two people can actually join in intercourse according to the way their bodies are made. We know that. Nobody can deny that. The fact that mankind very quickly, and even the godly line, even the godly line, corrupted marriage with the abomination of polygamy, with the taking of multiple wives. It starts in the line of Cain. But unfortunately, the godly line, even Abraham... Jacob, David, God forbid Solomon. What was in his mind? A thousand wives? What a wickedness. What a corruption of marriage. John Calvin says it this this way. Quote, nothing is less in accord with the divine institution than polygamy. Than to take multiple wives. What a wicked, what a worldly, what a pagan thing it was. And why did they do it? Well, because the world was doing it. This is how you get power. You have more wives. You can have more children. You can plow more ground. You can have more wealth. You can have more power. We want to be powerful too. We'll do it for God. Let's be like the world. That's why in the New Testament, Paul said an officer has to be the husband of one wife. This nonsense is ending. God allowed it in ancient Israel, and there were reasons for it. And he regulated the institution to protect the second wife or the un, uh, uh, unloved wife, as it were. He never commands it. He allowed it, and there were reasons for that, I think. There was a time, this was a time when, obviously, there are walled cities and roving bands of murderers. And if 
women weren't allowed or weren't able to attach themselves to one wealthy man, a lot of them would have starved. A lot of them would have been plunder or booty or killed or raped or whatever. So I think there was a reason in that violent and primitive world that, they, that God tolerated this, as it were. But it was always wicked. And it was always sinful. And they went along with it because it was what the world was doing. This is the way the world does things. So they did. And I see the exact same thing happening with gay marriage today. The exact same thing. So many churches and Christians. You know what? It's not such a big deal. Who cares what people do in the privacy of their own lives? Even though it's becoming less and less private as it's becoming forced upon people now. And the church is going along with it. So many churches. When I first preached against this, I, it, when, when it was declared a law by the Supreme Court, and I changed my sermon top, topic and I railed against it from Scripture, and everybody was, yes! And now everybody's like, oh, pastor, you have to talk about that. I've got gay friends. I get questioned now sometimes. I'm invited to a gay marriage. It's relatives of mine. What should I do, pastor? I, I want to show them that I love them. I want to show them that I support them. If you were invited to a rapist marriage, would you go? Celebrating rape. If you were invited to a murder marriage. We're going to get together and we're going to celebrate murder. Would you go to that? How could you possibly go to something that God calls an abomination that distorts the very trinity? How could you possibly do that? And if you love them, how could you possibly do that? You're hardening in them in sin. You're mocking God. You're a witness. I always say, before God and these witnesses, when you go to a wedding, you are a witness. You're saying, these people are married, and God is saying, no, they're not. And it doesn't matter if the whole world says they are, God will still say, no, they're not. How could we possibly even consider it to go? And then I love this one. Well, can I go to the reception? You don't want to go to the ceremony, but you want to go to the celebration of the ceremony. Yeah, that's awesome. If you love those people, don't go. Tell them why. I love you. I can't be part of this. What you're doing is awful. You're committing to, to shake your fist at God until you die and live in a way that he says is horrible. And you're committing to it with vows, with prayers, with scripture being read. Wow. Just as Samuel Alito, when the decision was rendered by the Supreme Court, wrote in his dissenting opinion, until the year 2000, there was no extant literature or proof of any kind that any nation ever in the history of man had ever condoned a marriage between two people of the same sex. There's always been polygamy. There's always been homosexuality in different nations. And they tolerated it for different nations. But nobody ever thought. Before the year 2000, as far as we know, maybe we'll dig up some manuscript that says different. But as far as we know, as pagan as Rome was, as pagan as Babylon was, nobody ever thought two men could get married. That's insane. Oh, they can have sex. They could do, you know, they were cool with that. But marriage is between men and women. Now, we can have lots of wives. They corrupted it in other ways. 
You know, don't tell me that, oh, it's always been this way, Pastor. We're just hearing more about it now. No, humankind's never done this before till our lifetime. It's never happened. No one's ever thought of being this corrupt. And the church is becoming like the world and saying it's okay. And God is not going to tolerate that. I want you to notice, thirdly, therefore, the purpose of marriage. I want you to notice the purpose of marriage. I say in wedding services, marriage is the ordinary calling of God on all adult persons in all times and all places. Because it is. Singleness is an extraordinary call. But marriage is given by God for certain purposes. We've already seen it's a covenant of companionship. That's one of the purposes. It shows forth the glory of God in his oneness and threeness. That's another purpose of marriage. Also, marriage shows forth the primary, again, that primary relationship, that chief relationship by which we image image and glorify and enjoy God. We are to be companions of one another. I want you to look at 24 again. A man shall leave his father and mother. He shall leave her then in order to cleave to his wife. John Calvin says on this text, it is a greater sin to desert a wife than to desert one's own parents. Because you need to desert your parents in order to truly cleave to your wife. I, the one thing, I, another thing I always do at weddings, maybe you know, those of you who are young aren't going to want me to do your wedding now. That's okay, I'll give it to Pastor Appleton. He needs more, he needs more work anyway. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely not true. But um, what I do in, uh, pre, uh, in, in the actual marriage ceremony, the night of the rehearsal, I always do a devotion, and I do it on this text. And I always exhort the parents, because we've already done the premarital counseling with the couple. So I always exhort both parents, and I had to exhort me and Robin this last time when I did my son, that you need to let your child leave. You need to let them leave. Because if they don't leave, if you still keep them attached somehow, they're never going to be able to cleave to one another. If a parent of either side gets in the way, gets in between, the son's still looking to dad for stuff. He's not going to his wife. He's going to dad. His wife doesn't know. That is wrong. He can't cleave until he leaves. Yes, they're still your kids, but you need to push them together. They're the new primary family unit that is the most important thing in either of their lives. More important than you as a parent. Robin and I believe that. Rachel is more important to Calvin now than we are. It has to be that way. They can't cleave together if we don't let them leave. It has to be the case. And it's not just, again, sometimes you get some weird exegetes trying to say, well, it's only the man that leaves, you know, because it says that here. Now, how does that work? You know, the woman is a daughter forever. You know, that's just absurd. How about Rebecca? One of the early marriages. When Abraham's servant goes to the, the, you know, uh, Laban's house and and God leads him to Rebecca and he, he lets Laban the brother of Rebekah, and Rebekah's father, no, look, God has directed me to, to, to this woman. And it says they don't say anything for it or against it. But what do they do? They go to her. Will you go with this man? And she says, I will. And she goes. She leaves her father's house. Literally, Rebekah. Likewise in Psalm 45. Verse 10, hear, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear, forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Here's a woman being exhorted, forget your father's house. You're going to become one of, well, hopefully not one of the queens. You're going to become the queen. 
The king's going to desire your beauty. But she had to leave her father's house for that to happen. The women are just as much called to leave, obviously. Likewise, both man and the woman are helpers to one another. I think sometimes we create this role of helper for all womankind. That's just not true. Right? Adam, I, saw, I, I spent all that time last week talking to you that the word helper has nothing to do with the woman. Has nothing to do with her. Has everything to do with the man. The man is incapable. Un, he is insufficient. He doesn't have what it takes. He needs help. God makes a helper. Eve's a helper in that sense. God's a helper, most often in scripture. Helper doesn't make all women helpers in some technical sense. That's folly. That's, that's wrong exegesis. And that's not the Reformed faith. The Reformed faith has never said women are helpers and men are, I don't know, primary actors or something. You know? It's never said that. According to the Reformed faith, marriage is a thing that both men and women help each other in. That the help is mutual. That marriage is an ordinance by which the mutual help of husbands and wives. You don't believe me. How about the Westminster Confession? Do you believe that is reformed? Westminster Confession 24.2. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife. The woman is no more a helper than you are helpers, men. And you need help. And your wife needs help. You help one another. Don't create some secondary office that's just non-biblical. A single woman carries out the creation mandate. Without a husband. She's not a helper to a man who alone gets the creation mandate. Look what God said in chapter 1 again. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply in the plural. Have dominion in the plural. Subdue the earth in the plural. Both of them are given the creation mandate. It's not Adam and the woman helps her. The woman has the creation mandate as much as the man. And every single woman carries out the creation mandate as much as any single man. Women are not perpetually helpers. We're going to look at this more next week when we look at roles. The man is the head of the wife. The wife is called to submit to the husband. That's the relationship in marriage. But that doesn't make her a perpetual helper status. He is just as much a helper as the Westminster Confession clearly teaches. And so men, if you're deferring to your mother, mother, and father, or anyone else, you are not treating your wife rightly. And women, that's the same. You need to leave mom and dad and cling to your husband. You are to be one heart, one flesh, one mind. Now, I know there are marriages where that doesn't happen. I know there are marriages where there's abuse. I know there are marriages where there's unfaithfulness. And there's often an innocent party. And maybe you're there right now saying, Oh, Pastor, this is breaking my heart because my marriage is not this. And I don't know what to do. Well, I can tell you this. Number one, nobody's marriage is perfect, even if it looks like it is. Even Robin and I have a spat every couple of years. There's a very small one. So there's that. But also, the ultimate call of all of our lives is to serve God and to be patient, right? Don't look at your whole life and say, I'm trapped in this marriage that's going to be awful forever. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Pray. Seek God's grace. Seek counsel. Seek other Christians. God can change the heart of your spouse. God can help you and heal your marriage, and I've seen it. And there is biblical divorce. That might be a solution. 
There are legitimate grounds where that needs to happen at times. And so there are other things as well. But I just want to notice that marriage as a purpose, not only is a covenant of companionship shows forth the glory of God, it demonstrates God's love, right? We're supposed to love one another. Especially the husband is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church. It shows God's order. Again, next week we'll look at the roles of marriage. There's an order. The roles are not the same. Marriage is not 50-50. There is a head. There is a body. There is a a call uh, on the wife and the husband, and it's different. But they are equal. But they're different. There's morality that's protected in marriage. We We are sexual creatures. We have sexual desires. Marriage is designed. So that that could be holy. The marriage bed is undefiled, Hebrews says. And it actually uses a word that uh, is coitus. Literally says sexual intercourse is undefiled in marriage. Which goes against what a lot of the early church fathers would say, right? You know, well, it's better to be, you know, a monk or a nun because sex is in some way bad. It's not. It was designed by God. It was created by God. All the pleasure from it is from God. But it's to be in marriage between one man and one woman. And so it's for the delight of man. Marriage protects morality, but it also gives delight. It gives pleasure. We should delight in the fact that we have a spouse and that we have joy. And if you're not having that, understand that the Lord, if you're faithful, he will in some way, shape, or form make that up to you. I don't know. Maybe not in this life. But I know that the solution is never sin. It's never run out in sin. Trust God. Wait on the Lord. Doesn't the scripture say that all the time? Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. And look to him. And he can hear and he can heal your prayers. We find many places where scripture talks about the delight of marriage. We read from the Song of Solomon last week. I asked, well actually I mentioned to Rick. I said, I don't know if I've ever picked a reading from the Song of Solomon to put in the bulletin before. It's just, you know, it's just provocative language, you know. And And it's supposed to be. Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 6. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. There's no hesitation in the Song of Solomon. When I do premarital counseling, you know, we look at it and I tell young couples, you know, before the wedding, don't get together and read this in private. I mean, you're, you're provoking your, your temptation to each other. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 10. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. The fragrance of your oils. More than all kinds of spices. This delight that we are to have in one another. There should be joy. And it's not just sexual. It's in the whole relationship. I love one of my favorite passages that speak of the delight of marriage is Genesis 29, verse 20. Where it says, Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days. And it says why? Because of his great love for her. He loved her so much that working seven years, that was like a couple of days. He loved her that much. He would have done another seven years. And unfortunately, he ended up doing another seven years because of Laban's trickery. And so this is the purpose of marriage. For the glory of God, it's for the good of man. Fourthly and lastly, the perfection of marriage. The perfection of marriage. You know, if we stop at the end of Genesis 2 and we said, what is the the height? What is the pinnacle verse? What verse tells us the glory and the goodness of creation more than any other verse that we've read so far before sin entered the world? And I would say without a doubt, it's verse 25. It doesn't get any better than that. Verse 25. And they were both naked... The man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. 
That is the beauty of the creation. That is the glory of the creation, the innocence, the righteousness. This is the pinnacle of what it was like before sin entered the world. And I'm not talking about some weird nudist philosophy that if we all get back to nature, everything's going to be awesome. It's not what I mean. We need clothes this side of the fall. It's right and good that we have them. We have to have them. And there are reasons why we need them. And in this, we can see part of the glory of verse 25. Let me give you some of the reasons. We need protection from the elements. Who would like to go outside naked right now and try to survive? You know, it's about 25 degrees out there. You couldn't do it. We need clothing because of the elements. We need clothing because of the weather. We need clothing because we could step on thorns and thistles, which the earth brings forth now. There are rocks that will cause you pain. I know as a kid, I could never go outside my bare feet. I don't know why. The other kids would run in their bare feet. As soon as I went out, I'd step on a bee immediately. There could be no bees in the yard. I swear one would materialize under my foot. And I would get sunk. To this day, I don't walk in the grass bare feet. I just have this knack. There must be a chemical in my feet that just attract bees. But we need shoes, right? We, we need shoes. So they're so important. And I know that now after plantar fasciitis, I need these extra sensitive soles. We need that. We need protection. We need from physical harm. They didn't need any. Nothing in this world would have harmed them. Don't ask me exactly how that works. You know, all the natural laws, people talk about gravity and so forth. What if they stepped off a cliff? All I know is that the natural laws are from God. They're by his active power. God is not a deist. He doesn't create things and and let them go. There is no way gravity could have killed anything before sin entered the world. God wouldn't let it. Gravity wasn't cursed. I don't know. Would you have floated if you stepped off a cliff? I don't know. Maybe you would have gently lowered yourself down. But gravity would not have been allowed by God to injure anything or any other natural law that was God's power, active power, aware power. He wouldn't have done it. There was no physical reason for clothing. There was no moral reason for clothing. Could you imagine if suddenly in this world today, nobody wore clothes? It would be, it would be horrible. I mean, for a lot of other reasons too. But I mean, seriously, I mean, women would be raped all over the place. I mean, children would be preyed upon. I mean, men would not control their urges. As soon as they got someone around the corner, it would be, I mean, it would be like, like hell. It would be horrible. Because we need protection from the moral and spiritual wickedness that's in each one of us. Clothing is to do that, right? I mean, I know when, when Sarah was getting older and Robin and I would be like, you know, especially Robin would be shopping and she was just trying to find her some kind of clothing that didn't make her look like a prostitute. I mean, the styles today, these tight little outfits for these little girls all the time. And clothing protects women from that. Clothing protects women from predators and it protects men uh, from predators. Men get raped by other men now. This is the kind of world we live in. Adam and Eve didn't need that. There wasn't a single immoral thought in either of their minds they would have never even thought of anything indecent or in any way to abuse anyone or treat anyone as an object that would have never entered their minds they were without sin there was no moral reason for clothing and there was no reason for beauty and for ornamentation that's the third reason we have clothes right we have a lot of imperfections on our bodies We need to cover it up. Robin's the one who taught me that women's styles are designed to hide things. I didn't know that when I was just a single guy, right? To to hide maybe the fact that you don't like the way your body looks here or there. 
And a lot of clothing is that. It, it's ornamentation. It, it hides us. We, we get older, right? Our bodies decay. They get injured. They have scars. And clothing covers that up. Clothing enables us to, to continue to be beautiful, as it were. That was not the case before the fall. Jesus said of Solomon that in all his glory, he was not like a lily in the field. That without sin, before sin entered the world, man, woman, every human being would have been perfect in beauty. Perfect in ornamentation. Any clothing on them would have taken away from that. It would have been perfect. Because man is the perfect, glorious image of God. And art itself imitates that, but it falls well short, right? Falls well short of that. Uh, I get to tell a story about Sarah. She's not here, my first one. So don't tell her I said anything. When she was a little girl, I would say to her, Oh, Sarah, my daughter, you're pretty as a picture. I remember saying that to her. She was about four years old. And she stopped and she cocked her head and she looked at me and she said, Dad, I'm way prettier than a picture. <laughs> Listen, this was her reason. Pictures aren't even real. She understood that what God had made, what's real, is so much more beautiful than man's best imitation. I mean, what are the best works of art? What are the, what's the most famous painting? It's not the dogs playing poker. It's not a soup can. You know, Pittsburgh, Andy Warhol. It's the Mona Lisa. It's a woman. The beauty. And, and it falls well short of the beauty of an actual woman. You know, that human beings would need clothing when we are the glory of God. Calvin asked the question, he says, that the nakedness of men should be deemed indecorous and unsightly while that of cattle has nothing disgraceful. Seems little to agree with the dignity of human nature. If we're the most glorious being, why should we cover up? Why should we have clothing? Shouldn't the animals? They're so much lower than us. They should be ashamed to be naked. Calvin goes on, why do we feel no shame to see a naked horse or a dog or a cop, but we blush to see a naked person, even ourselves? We don't even like to stand very long and look at ourselves in the mirror naked, do we? And if you are and somebody walks in, your spouse walks in, oh, you don't want to act like you were looking at yourself. (laughs) And we blush. Blushing's been called the color of virtue in a sinful world. Adam and Eve would never have blushed. There was no reason. There was no sin in them. There was nothing inappropriate in them or that would come from them. I want us to really remember this when we get to the fall. There's a lot of theories of a fall before a fall. You know, they they fall before they actually... Sin cannot come from out of them. There is nothing... The temptation has to come from external. There is nothing in them... That is sinful at all. And this is why the man and the woman were naked. And they were not ashamed. And it would never have dawned on them to cover up. There was no reason to. And while this first marriage was perfect and holy without sin for a brief time, the ultimate marriage, as we will look at, is between Christ and the church. Marriage was not instituted to show that forth, but because of sin, it actually does. And the fulfillment of marriage is Christ in the church, the ultimate marriage. What we have that's so much better than what Adam and Eve would have had, even had they stood, that we are actually adopted into 
the family of God, that we have the Trinity living inside of us now. God, through sin, think of it, gives us more than what we would have had if we would have earned our own righteousness. And so all the purposes of marriage are ultimately fulfilled in your relationship with Christ. And that's what I want to leave you with if you're single or if you're in a horrible marriage. The purposes of marriage are fulfilled gloriously beyond any possible imagination or thought that could enter your mind. You will see it one day that in Christ and in you being his bride, all of the purposes far beyond we could ask or imagine are because you are a child of God and Jesus Christ is your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the covenant of marriage. What a beautiful thing it is. And yet, Lord God, it pales in comparison to the marriage that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For we are the bride of the church. And though in and of ourselves we are soiled and corrupted and filthy, yet in Christ we are beautiful. We are clothed in radiant glory. We are the most glorious thing in creation because Christ's righteousness is our gown. And so we thank you, Lord, for this ultimate truth. And help us in our human marriages to imitate this. And those, Lord God, who are in difficult marriages, grant your healing mercy and grace. Grant repentance to a spouse who needs to repent. And Lord God, grant restoration. But Father, most of all, bless your people. Bless all those who are single to know that they are already married in Christ. And help us to look forward to that day when we will be joined together with him forever at the wedding supper of the Lamb. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.